Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Andrew Chapman, who is an associate professor in the Faculty of Economics at Kyushu University. Very nice to speak to you again today, Andrew. Thank you very much, Chris. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, there's a couple of things that we need to bring up. First of all, that back in the early days of Lost in Citations, uh, you did an interview while you were over in America. Correct. But unfortunately, the audio didn't work out and uh, it got nixed. Uh, And also the fact that this is the first in-studio interview that we're doing for Lost in Citations. Really? Yes, it is. Wow. Um, That I'm calling the Lunchtime Series, where people who have a little bit of free time and a lot of experience come and join us for uh, for an interview. So thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Not at all, not at all. So the paper we're going to be speaking about today is Evaluating the Global Impact of Low-Carbon Energy Transitions on Social Equity. And a common theme that's been coming up in recent interviews is the amount of information that's being given in the title Mm. of the paper. Mm. So would you like to kind of unpack some of the concepts there before we start breaking them down? Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent question, a really good point. In fact, some journals are even pushing us in the social and energy sciences to Mm. have longer, more descriptive, or even in some cases more catchy titles. Now, I'm Mm. not a big believer in that. I think less is more. I think if we can get to the point quickly, that's good. But this title, for example, which is in the... uh, in the uh, in the Journal of Environmental Innovation and Societal Transitions, quite a good journal in our field. Um, so obviously the first part of the title, Evaluating the Global Impact. So we're looking at uh, 99 countries in this specific journal, and that's why we're saying it's global in nature. And the low carbon energy transition is the next theme that comes up there. And that really is our common challenge towards carbon neutrality, ideally, or at least shifting away from a fossil fuel-based regime to a a more sustainable one. And the final concept in that title, social equity, really talks about fairness. So the sharing of costs and benefits of that transition. Mm. And we can drill down into some of those as we go, if you'd like. Mainly in the uh, area of, you know, the, the choice of the energy production and its global impact. Mm. So where do you where do you set your parameters of where one country's decision of uh, energy production impacts globally? So it's kind of the reverse of that concept. What we're saying is each country is unique. And therefore, if we can look at it globally, we can start to draw some distinction between, for example, low-income countries or sub-Saharan African countries or countries which cluster in Northern Europe, for example, and all of their experience, renewable energy endowment and all of these things is different. So when we say a global assessment, we mean look at all of them, evaluate them on a common scale and say, are they similar? Are they different? Can we learn from one to the other? We're not saying perhaps that maybe Sweden's low-carbon energy transition will impact Africa or something like that. In fact, the reverse of that concept. Yeah. Break it down a little bit, because mm. this is not a, a topic that we, we cover very much on uh, the podcast, mm. but I know that it's something that has come up recently. I mean, uh, the uh, even the, the King of England has been in Dubai recently for the, you know, the, the, the carbon conference or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Mm-hmm. So uh, how do you scale? How do you put various 
points of energy, which is probably not the best way to describe mm. them, mm. Uh, but uh, sources of energy uh, on a scale in terms of their um, equity. Ah, uh, excellent question. So this is this is really maybe the key point. So my researchers, my research focuses on social equity, and this is a concept that we've developed in our lab over the years, which says that up until now, people have been very good at quantifying economic outcomes. And then on the flip side, of, on, the, on, the, on the back end of that, they've also been very good at quantifying environmental outcomes. And at the same time, we've made those two concepts very fungible. So we've been able to come up with statements like dollars per ton of CO2, mm, or mm. number of trees planted, number of cars off the road, or mm. how much is a carbon credit worth? Mm. And so I, I think your mind is probably going in the direction that's saying, okay, so quantifying economic and environmental aspects is relatively common, well understood, we can count them easily. And the social aspects have often taken a qualitative back seat. This research and our research long term uh, hopes to overcome this and make social equity also a quantitative framework. And so we have a process in which to do that. And if you'd like, I can take you through very, very quickly the steps mm -hmm. in sure, which we do do that. Do. So the first step is that we talk to people. We often engage in large scale surveys at the different nations in the world. And we ask people with the energy system as the boundary, because that's what we're looking at here. What are the important aspects of social equity to them? And this research bears those out. I'll give you some examples. It's usually things like employment. It's usually things like the cost of energy. It's usually things like how much can we improve the environment by reducing CO2 or particulate matter? How are we overcoming energy poverty for places in which that is an issue? And so each of these things are important and can be quantified using uh, what we usually call uh, proxy variables, which come from the, their environmental and economic counterparts. And we start to pull apart these conceptual things and measure them quantitatively. So then we can score them mm. and we can plot them using a, a method that, if you like, we can drill down into a little bit later, um, where we can show that does the improvement of quality of life, which is a good uh, synonym for social equity, mm. and the deployment of renewable energy in terms of energy generated in the energy system, not just the number of solar panels, but the actual energy generated, do those two things correlate? And is it specific to income level? Is it specific to energy access, health, employment, so on and so forth? And is it different in different places? Mm. That's what we're looking at. So when we're talking about energy generation, mm. we're, what are the systems that are available so just as we get a general picture, because mm. like I say, like I, I doubt that many people uh, who are listening to this are as expert in this area as you. Mm. Um, what are these kind of energy production methods that are available? Excellent question. So we always look <clears throat> at new renewable energy. So that is anything that's being introduced into the system which hasn't been in the previous regime. So when we think about the fossil fuel regime, mm. the types of, we talk about, you know, coal-fired power, uh, gas-fired power, nuclear power, it's not a fossil fuel, but a, a, a existing source. And the other one that is also a renewable energy, which can be used for baseload energy generation, is hydropower. Mm -hmm. So we don't count these in our new energy sources. We talk about solar, mm -hmm. wind, geothermal, biomass. These mm -hmm. are the big ones. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the deployment of new renewables into these countries. And why would you not consider something geothermal to be something that was an existing power source? Ah, 
Excellent question. So, so you might say, oh, it sounds similar to to hydropower, for example. It could right, play a base right. role.、Um, geothermal can be deployed in the short term. Hydropower is a process that's thirty and forty years and requires、mm. significant.、Uh, Even terrain change to make that come to pass. Well, just thinking about like the Three Gorges Dam or something like that. Yeah, so we don't anticipate those to be coming on mass into the new energy space.、Right. Whereas geothermal,、uh, there are a couple of types of geothermal, but binary and flash are, are some that come to mind. That can be rapidly deployed without even radical drilling and these kind of things, even at the kind of the micro scale.、Mm. And so we see some nations are uniquely positioned to to implement those quickly. And therefore, we count those, whereas we don't count hydro because we don't anticipate it to come in large numbers. If pico or micro hydro were prominent in those nations, we would collect those.、Mm. Hasn't been the case so far. Before we get into the particulars of the paper, I, one one more point that kind of comes to mind. Sure,、uh, is obviously geographical location is unbelievably relevant to the possibilities of using these new sources.、Um, Where do you set、um, the parameters of judging how well they've these other sources of energy have been set up relative to their geographical location? Yeah, so that's something that does get borne out in the analysis. Right.、Um, we do find that nations who have a pre-existing endowment of convenient renewables、mm. do do better.、Mm-hmm. Um, And 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 by better, how do you define that? Oh, what, what what's better? Oh, that they aggressively deploy them, and as a result, they get better employment outcomes, better environmental outcomes, better energy cost outcomes. All of the things that are linked together.、Mm-hmm. We don't often see nations that have an excellent renewable endowment, then deploying those types of energy and finding that electricity is suddenly more expensive, or there are less jobs. We find that those two things generally go、mm-hmm. hand in hand.、Mm-hmm. The flip side of your question, which may be of interest to the listeners, is. There are also nations that do not have such endowments,、right. but these nations generally don't also have a solid supply of electricity. So think of your African developing African nations.、Yes. They don't have, you know, mega hydro waiting for them. They don't have geothermal that's easily drilled under the ground. They don't have, you know, a wind resource, but they can get solar relatively easily,、mm. and the entry level is very low. So for a household who de- never had electricity for more than say thirty minutes a day. Suddenly, having the ability to put a small solar panel on the roof and charge their mobile telephone、mm. changes their life in immeasurable ways. Right, right. So those differences are also borne out. Right. So you can come from a very low level of of quality of life and and rapidly increase,、mm. but not reach the level of your developed nation, nation's peers in the short term.、Mm-hmm. And so there are some dynamics that fit in that. But generally, endowments do lead to positive outcomes. That's what we're seeing, especially in the richer European nations, which also happen to be some of the Very well set up nations. So, what comes first,、um, the ability to、uh, create energy or the ability to effectively use energy for these outcomes? Yeah, that's a really great question.、Um, there's not a simple answer to that.、Um, the only nations in which we see the rapid ability to use these, you know, sleeping giants of, of energy are the developed nations.、Mm. So, the poorer nations, even if they had these resources, without Know-how transfer,、mm. without you know funding transfer, without some kind of support, they just don't get used.、Mm. And so, what comes first in a developed nation? It's the resource.、Uh, in the developing nations, it's probably the other economic、uh, and、uh, knowledge transfer institutions. Not to get too far into the weeds on this, but、uh, the the Belt and Road Initiative、um, of、uh, the Chinese、yep. Communist Party、mm. in relation to their connections in Africa. 
seem to have noticed this possibly earlier than other possible investors mm. into this area. So do you have any, any comment on that? I might do well to avoid comment on that because okay. we've seen previously with the investment regimes that the CCP does invest into these countries when they see these opportunities often don't mean good outcomes for the residents of those nations. And this research focuses on those outcomes, those mm. self-propelled outcomes, mm -hmm. rather than maybe some of the bait and switch might be going too far kind of investment things where we see this kind of massive debt that then is allocated and perhaps the energy is, is taken out or the positives are sucked out by a third party. Our research is very specific to what's happening on the ground and I can mm. explain why that's the case as we proceed through. Well, uh, then let's get into the sure. the uh, the specifics of, of what um, your uh, what your research found. And um, I did bring up to you before the uh, interview began mm. that uh, the uh, it was flagged by Tohoku University as being one of the UN sustainable development goal related research. Mm -hmm. So we can certainly say that it's within the purview of what the United Nations is looking for sure. uh, in order to create sustainable development. Mm -hmm. So could you lay out some of the some of the findings and uh, the, the things that uh, people might be interested in your research? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing, we, we almost got there just a moment ago, we said rather than looking at the ex external, looking at the internal. So we took 99 nations. Uh, no rhyme or reason for their selection, but that data was readily available for those nations and provided for the most part by the World Bank, who has an initiative. And one of the really unique things about World Bank data, especially world development indicators that we're looking at, so things like employment, energy access, you know, education opportunity, clean water, PM 2.5, all of these things, um, is that often their data collection is better in developing nations than in developed nations because of the need for such investigations in these nations. So obviously they're more present in these nations. So we're able to get a, a really lovely coverage of European, North and South American, uh, African. Oceania is a little bit patchy, but you know population centers are also a little bit patchy in Oceania, so that's mm. probably understandable, um, to really get a nice picture on this. Okay, and so what did we find? Well. Uh, what we found was that, as you would expect, uh, developed nations, or what we call middle to high or high income nations, because we stratify them in four low, uh, low middle, middle, high and high, um, is that high income nations already had a very high level quality of life. Um, let me give you an example that will resonate with you. When you go home to your house at night time, you flick the light switch and the only thing you expect is that the lights will come on. Mm. That is the existence that you live. The television is, is connected. The, the house is warm. You're able to cook. You're mm. able to clean. Do all of the facilities of life, probably without even thinking about them. Mm. And so we already know that our quality of life is very high. And so the first thing we found for those nations was the further deployment of renewables did improve quality of life. But it's not radical mm. because energy was already coming to the home. We don't see the pollution of the fossil fuel plants. You know, we have a fairly stable life. So we saw a massive deployment of renewables, but mm. a very moderate increase in quality of life, as you might expect. So then let's go to the very bottom end then. And what did we see? What we first saw was that struggling developing nations or the lowest of the low uh, in terms of income 
had very low levels deployment of renewables. Mm. But we also need to understand that they also have a very uh, low supply of reliable energy to begin with. Mm. So already their energy access is very, very low. So they're not even participating in the energy system in a lot of situations. Mm. So even a small amount of renewables completely changes their life. Again, back to the mobile telephone yep. example. Yep. And so we found that a very small deployment of renewables could radically improve their quality of life. However, they don't get to the level of developed nations in one, you know, renewable energy is not the only answer here, clearly. The group which progressed the most was the lower middle income nations, mm. uh, interestingly enough, who had a moderate deployment of renewable energy, but a very high growth. There are some underpinning factors which I should probably mention here that may get lost in translation if I don't. So, uh, but If I could just interject. Please the, do. Uh, uh, Could you give us some examples, just just as a framing, of what these uh, low to middle income countries might be? Oh, you mean where they are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Just just so that you know, yeah. people who are listening can kind of like so set let, it in their mind. Yeah, let me give you some examples of low <clears throat> middle countries. I won't read all of them, but uh, Bangladesh, Egypt, Ghana, India, Indonesia, some names we know, uh, Zimbabwe, Vietnam, mm-hmm. Ukraine, in fact, mm-hmm. a low middle income country. Um, so that's a snapshot. There are about... 15 or 16 oh, yeah, in the yeah, complete yeah. list. Um, and so they had a moderate deployment and a large improvement in their quality of life. So already you're probably thinking, oh, India, Indonesia, I know what's happening in those countries. They're rapidly modernizing. And that's true. So the renewables is a small part of their quality of life improvement. Mm-hmm. But under that, what we found, in fact, in a lot of these nations was that for every deployment of renewables, there are often tens of times the amount of fossil fuel deployment also happening. So we control for that in some of our statistical analysis throughout the paper. But, but you know, the reality on the ground is rapid modernization does not always just mean renewables. These right. countries are developed as we developed. Think about the Industrial Revolution. Think about the pea soup fogs over London. You know, this is the kind of existence yes, that we yes, had. And yeah. they are struggling in the same ways that we struggled years later. Right. And this is kind of the... Uh Like the pushback on, um, you know, requiring uh, developing nations to mm. take on renewables in that we didn't do that in the 1750s through to the like 1870s. Exactly. Like we just burned things as quickly as we could get them to make sure that we made economic development. And this is where we are today. Correct. Quick question. Mm. Um, when it comes to uh, investment in things like uh, renewables... Mm. Uh, is it something you, you mentioned that you know job uh, opportunities increase? Is it because if you're building a dam or you're building a solar farm or you're building a, a, a wind farm or something like that, it's something that can't be outsourced. You have to actually physically do it in that place. Therefore, it does create employment, and then they have to be maintained. And uh, is, is, is that part of it? Like having renewable energy sources within your country actually requires uh, something that can't be outsourced. Correct. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of work on that. And this paper does delve into those employment issues. And you're right. Often the technology itself is imported. We know that it's made in other countries. So the manufacture often is external. Right. However, as <clears> you say, the the deployment of, of solar panels, the welding associated with the frames that goes with those, and then the maintenance that follows. We generally find that in the transition from fossil fuels to renewables, the amount of jobs per kilowatt hour or terawatt hour of, of generated energy is not so different. So the jobs are maintained or slightly increased for renewables. There's a, mm. there's a slight 
shift per kilowatt hour. Um, and you're right, the local people generally do get those jobs. Mm. And so that's a, a double uh, benefit that comes from that. Yeah, you, that that's that's a very good assumption and you're in line with what we found. And so it, is that part of the social equity that yep. be, because you can't outsource these jobs, like the uh, this kind of social equity comes along with the use of renewables and while you may have to rely in the transition period on importing other fuels, that renewable sources of energy can't be moved away. Yeah. So they often come with the resource itself, whether it be the sunlight or the wind or whatever those things are. So yes, they right, can't yeah. be moved away. Um, and it's interesting because in developed nations who you know maybe enjoy full employment or low levels of unemployment according to their economic parameters... Um, the transition, so people in fossil fuel industries lose their jobs mm. and people in the renewable industry gain those jobs. And so we look at the delta on those, mm. obviously. Um, and some of those jobs are directly transferable. Mm. A welder in a power station and a welder on a, on a solar plant is the same welder. Um, but some jobs will change. But in nations that didn't have fossil fuels underpinning their, or didn't have energy to begin with, right. these are completely new jobs, completely new right, industries. So right. they're seeing a bigger benefit. And that's why the shift in social equity for these lower income nations is generally larger than well, it is for the high income nations. Well, can you give me some uh, examples from the lower income nations where, mm. where this is being uh, this is being demonstrated, this, this yep. effect? Yeah, absolutely, I can. Um, so the low income nations that I'm talking about specifically are, are places like, you know, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Benin, Haiti, Nepal, the Congo Democratic Republic, so on and so forth. And you'll look at nations like, for example, Ethiopia over the uh, 25 period, 25 year period that we assessed their energy system from 1990 to 2015. Um, Ethiopia went off a base of 0% renewables in their energy system mm -hmm. and a social equity score. And again, this is a relative score, so it's not so important, but about 36 or 37 points to just a moderate. 7% deployment of renewable energy of their overall generation, and their uh, social equity score increased by about 10 points as a result. Mm. Now, what does 10 points mean? It's, it's, it's relative. High-income nations, for example, went from an average of, say, 60 points to 62 or 63, so their increase was much smaller, but mm. that high mm. level. Um, and if we're talking about the median and average shift, um, Ethiopia's shift was much larger than mm. that ex 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 experienced by the, the, the higher End. So we're very happy to see that even just a modest deployment of renewables meant a lot of great outcomes. And perhaps to give just a little bit of detail to that, we then decompose these outcomes according to income level, mm. and we show what is driving that change. So for example, in high income nations, they don't see a radical change, but the one factor that does improve for them is their health. So health seems to uh, react along with new renewable deployment, as you would expect. Less yes. PM 2.5 in the air, less CO2, so on and so forth. But for low-income nations, what we saw was participation, which is energy access, rural and urban energy access, actually being able to participate in the energy, actually mm. having the lights come on. <clears throat> it peaks and dips with the peaks and dips of renewable installations. So we're already mm. seeing people's lives are directly being changed. Um, on the other hand, the energy cost was decreased in the in these nations, meaning that their overall disposable income is increased. So that's obviously a massive boost. And uh, the other thing that we saw was the employment peak early in that mm. transition period. 
What do you attribute the the employment peak? Is is that that's the new the, energy the, industry? Just the setting yep. up. Yeah, and it's the flow on as well because we take national employment as well as GDP growth because employment means different things in different nations. So we needed mm-hmm. a push pull factor in this case. But yeah, the the deployment of renewables would mean a lot of things. And in Africa, I mean, I think you may have heard. Um, especially women being included in the employment mm-hmm, uh, space, mm-hmm. even just having electricity and providing a mobile telephone charging kiosk, mm-hmm. for example, seems to be quite popular, at mm-hmm. least in the last 10 years. And without electricity, that wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. So people, for people mm-hmm. to have these kind of new jobs, so the telecom industry and the industry hand in hand, so that initial spike of employment seems to be very much linked to this uh, new energy. And is it continuing? Like, uh, uh, is this flow of... Um, employment and the ability to, you know, do well uh, economically is it is it continuous or, or does it or does it, or does it peak and then trough? Yeah. So uh, in the low income nations, it peaks and then troughs right. uh, and then sta- stabilizes. Mm-hmm. Um, but for lower middle income nations, those nations who come back, those rapidly modernizing nations, especially in the energy system, it has been sustained. Mm. Um, yeah, well above the initially expected uh, uh, level. Um, for at least the past 10 years. So that seems to be a very positive message coming out of that. And do you have a prediction for where it's going to be 10 years from now? Um, yeah, I, that's actually some bad news that I'd like to share because I think it's good to balance research with, with, mm-hmm. with um, you know, our estimations for the future. I'd like to talk a little bit about what we're calling the development curse. A minute ago, you talked about we went through a development phase where we rip, rip, wood chip, burnt all the coal that we could find so that we could have a convenient life and new economic opportunity. Sure, that's what we did. But we also bore the health impacts of that activity. Yes. Right. And we know what they look like. We know what they are. They're very predictable. Yes. We know with a fairly high level of confidence how many people in a million will get this kind of disease as a result. So all of a sudden, all these wonderful things are happening in these developing nations. Mm -hmm. New jobs, new energy, new excitement, new opportunities, you know, dealing with climate change. But I think I mentioned just a moment ago that for every you know, unit of RE, that, or renewable energy, RE we call it, mm-hmm. uh, that's being deployed. A lot of fossil fuel is also being deployed. Mm. So the short-term gains are what people are seeing today. Yes. In 30 years' time, it will come time to pay the bill. And that will be the massive fossil expansion, the new coal-fired power plants that have also underpinned some of these opportunities. The health impacts will be felt. Yes. And so although the employment may be sustained, maybe the energy prices will stabilise, right. maybe the participation will continue to be at a high level, but I feel that health will suffer in the long term and we're not paying that bill today. It's probably about 10 years down the track. Would that be your prescription, Mm. Dr. Chapman, Mm. that more renewable energies should be set up now to make sure that these um, carbon-burning-related consequences can be mitigated in the future. Yes. So, yeah, that absolutely aligns with our findings in a lot of our research, and that is ambitious renewable energy targets that are sustained do lead to long-term health positive outcomes. Give us those targets. So, I mean, in places like Japan, we're talking about carbon neutrality for 2050, which is ambitious. Um, In China, whose uh, CO2 level has yet to peak, Mm. um, 2060, 2070, India is also in that basket. So the developed nations... They'll be all right for the first 90%, but the final 10 will be their challenge. For developing nations, it's not our place as developed nations, and at least from my point of view, this kind of white-centric uh, view of you know the world and development and all of these things that happens in the US and Europe and yeah, Australia. Yeah, yeah. 
we shouldn't be telling these people who are developing how they should develop. We mm -hmm. should be assisting them to achieve those targets more rapidly, whether it be via green loans, whether it be via knowledge transfer, whatever it might be. But just saying, hey, you guys can't burn fossil fuels is probably not mm. our role um, in this big question. Yeah. It is a good point to note that we have... I mean, the kind of the Anglosphere mm -hmm. and uh, Japan and, and other places that have been assisted by uh, the United States uh, in rebuilding after World War II in, in that transition period um, have gained a lot mm. by not by not having to pay a lot of this forward. What we want to say, I think, mm -hmm. or what you are saying, uh, is that we want to get to the positive outcomes faster. So what are you doing with this research, with your team, to get the message out there and also improve the conditions in the next 10, 15, 25, 50 years? Yeah, so the first thing is we're finally, and here in Japan it's a struggle, but this is a 99 nation study, so I think I can be a bit broader in my response. Hmm is we are finally getting to the point where um, not only is carbon neutrality important, mm. not only is the energy transition important, but also the social outcomes are important. Mm. And in Japan, we haven't got to the point of saying that yet. Japan mm. in, in 2020 uh, finally said we're going to be carbon neutral, and that word became very popular in our vernacular here in Japan. Mm. But social equity or energy justice, mm. although it seems quite hot at the moment in Europe and to a lesser degree in the US, mm. um, it hasn't really hit us here in Asia just yet. But what, what do you mean by energy justice? Ah, so energy justice really is, is one aspect of this social equity that says, you know, if we're going to change the energy system, it should be done in a just way. Mm -hmm. And that is coming back to that whole debate that we've just, just had. Um, and so I would really like through this research to be able to say to people, Social equity and energy justice, if you like, uh, more broadly, is not just a theoretical concept. It's not just something that says, oh, it feels nice or it looks better or it makes me happy or these kind of empty qualitative statements. But we can quantify it. Mm. We can compare experiences and compare technologies and compare development levels and compare income levels and all of these things and say, we can tailor fit for purpose policy outcomes for each of these nations, not just say, we did it this way and you should too. We can say these are the things that worked for us, mm. looking at your situation. These part of those things may work for you, and therefore we can transfer this part. That's the contribution here. Mm. So then, obviously, our research team is international, um, you know, multiple universities, at least in Japan, on this research, mm -hmm. but linking with our partners throughout the world and obviously our interaction with the Japanese government directly as a result for us mm. is one way of pushing this forward. Mm. Mm. And so... Uh, it, you mentioned that um, that there's, there's there's kind of a life cycle of energy production, mm -hmm. and the hope is to use technology and research and uh, investment, green investment, as you say, to accelerate this life cycle. Mm. Do you think that is it is it a, is it a hope or is it something that you actually believe that uh, countries that are on the lower end of the economic spectrum will achieve that leap of economic production, GDP improvement that was fueled by coal in Europe, but could be 
fueled by renewable energy in, for example, Africa, in the same kind of lifespan? Mm. That's a huge question. Um, yes, my answer I would like to say is it is something that I believe is possible, and I'll give you the reasons why. Mm. Um, burning coal was a no-brainer. People who backed the Industrial Revolution did so for a very specific reason, and it was to enable the development of uh, harder steels and better things for production to make mm. our lives more convenient. That was the whole point mm. of that mm. thing. And we learnt from that. We learnt that if we burnt coal and coats that we could make nice steel. That's what we learnt. And then now 100 or more years later, we have learnt that with the appropriate energy storage uh, capacity, we can generate most of the energy that we need from the sun and from the wind and from the ocean and all of these things. And we've learnt that. We mm. know that now. Every year we produce solar panels which are more efficient. Mm. We produce bigger and bigger wind turbines that make more and more energy. And we're in a very privileged position to be able to say to the people who are doing the same learning that we did with the coal and the coats and the steel production that actually a large portion of their lifestyle requirements could be derived from other sources and we can show them how to use them. Mm. We can show them where to put them. We can fund their transition such that they don't suffer the health impacts that we do. We can bring them along on that journey that we had and we can accelerate that transition timeline. I do believe that is possible. Mm. On the other hand, I think it's only uh, a good practice to be honest that this is not easy. Mm. To say that we can just give them a truck full of solar panels and all of their problems are solved is arrogant and not what it means. Right. We also understand that there are technologies that fit in between the energy generation and the grid, whether it's mm. storage, whether it's distribution, you know, this kind of thing, and, and the correct types of energy for the correct types of application. So it's not an overnight thing. But we do know that the initial investment is worth it. Mm. And if we can accelerate their transition pathway, I think the benefits will flow in two directions. I, I think that we will get the benefits of that investment. Well, talk about that investment then. Where, where, where should it come from? Is it something that we should be asking the low-income countries to put their own sweat equity into? Or is it something that as a global, global net positive... It should be something that United Nations or other groups should be putting their investment into because it is such a net benefit for these nations. Yeah, that's a huge question and certainly not something that we seek to solve in this paper alone, but I will, I will address it because I think it's important. One thing that we do share as a planet is this global temperature uh, target. You know, we're aiming for 1.5. The good money at the moment is four degrees Celsius, probably in our lifetimes. Yes. And that's a lot. Um, mm. Our bodies can really feel consistently one to two degrees difference. And at the upper and lower ends of the spectrum, that can be the difference between living and dying for some people, depending on their economic wherewithal. And so I think as a global community, considering the amount of money that we invest in things like military expenditure or you know, other efforts, or even if we disregard that wasted money, depending on your opinion, yeah, yeah. Um, the money that we send to nations as our humanitarian aid, yeah. you know, even to focus that more sharply on visible results, whether it be in the energy system or yeah. food production yeah. or whatever. I think there is there is so much uh, money that is wasted or misappropriated in this world that, you know, even before we think about new investment, 
mm. which is critical. But I mean, you're you're built and uh, sorry, what's the project called? Uh, I think it's Belt and Road. Belt and Road. Okay. I think. Yeah. I, I may be wrong. Anyway, the 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 new Silk Road, right? The new Silk Road. Yeah. And uh, you know that kind of investment often comes with a quid pro quo. Mm. And that is, well, we're going to develop a port for you, and therefore we want military access to this port. Or mm. we're going to develop this bridge for you, and as a result, we want to be able to station our troops here. We want some kind That's of right. return. Yeah. That's quite okay. You know, the world still works like that, and especially in nations which are connected on a common grid, so the European grid, mm-hmm. the African grid, the African-European grid, which is now a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the energy that is generated in sub-Saharan Africa can be sent all around Europe at different times of use and and really fix some of the huge issues hmm. with time of use that come with renewables. Because if the sun ain't shining, the solar is not producing electricity. Right. But if you can stagger that solar production by seven or eight hours across you know geographic regions. Through battery usage? Oh, no, no, no. Just through grid transmission. Oh, I see. Yeah, so if it's, yeah, it's, oh, right, if it's the morning the... in Turkey and it's the evening in Britain, you can yeah. send that electricity and it's an economic benefit to the sender. Yeah. And a energy benefit or a CO2 benefit for the receiver. In Japan, we're a bit limited because we're not connected to other nations grid-wise. But certainly the Africa, Europe, Eurasia grid is a very interesting concept that's being, you know, deeply looked into. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of win-win here. You know, putting new energy into these nations is not going to uh, take away from us. You know, if it stops us from importing oil and gas from Russia, for example, that would be a very timely you know, uh, contribution, I think, to the energy system and uh, sort of that uh, geopolitical stability as well. When you talk about geopolitical stability, and this is probably a good way to bring the conversation home, Mm. um, would you agree that for even the developing countries, the the, the lower um, GDP countries, uh, having good renewable energy structures and connections to their neighboring countries actually brings them more freedom, actually brings them more uh, the ability to make their own geopolitical decisions, not based on having to buy oil or gas from somewhere else, but it also gives them the freedom for their own economic decisions. Yeah, I I would agree. I wouldn't say it's my area of expertise. Obviously, I've only lived in two nations that have very uh, individual grids, that is Australia, a big island, and Japan, a somewhat smaller island, mm-hmm. um, where they don't have neighbours where energy can come, and, come to and from. But looking at the <clears throat> experience of the EU, at least, um, and the radical change to the energy situation in Europe because Russian oil, Russian gas was no longer available to be imported or available to be imported but seen as undesirable, yeah, absolutely. If energy self-sufficiency is... And some might say removed by nefarious means. Yeah, well, it, there was a number of permutations in that space. But, 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 getting back to your question. Mm. If these nations had energy independence based on their strong geopolitical relations with one another, mm. they would not mm. be beholden right. to nations whose values perhaps didn't align with theirs yes. in terms of sending them economic uh, benefits to prop up those regimes, which maybe, again, don't align with their values. So I think, yes, this can be win-win, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this paper was uh, published in... 2021. 2021. Uh, it, 
Do you have another vector to work on it? Do you have other avenues that you're that you're looking at to further it? I mean, I, I've, I mean, you know, all cards on the table. I've known Andrew for uh, many years, and this is uh, the culmination of a, a conversation that's been going on for those number of years. And so we've we've basically broken down in forty five minutes what <laughs> we've been speaking about for quite a while. But I'd like to know. Sure. What's next? So in respect to this, one thing we did touch on a little bit today was the enabling technologies. So what fits in between renewables and people? And some of the big questions are, okay, full electrification. That's one way. So you think batteries and and expansion of the grid. The other is hydrogen energy. We're Mm. very much interested in these and whether they work in different places in different ways. And we find that they do. Um, So not surprisingly, different strokes for different folks also uh, Mm -hmm. stands for energy as well. Um, In terms of social equity measures, yes, we're really sharpening our pencil in this area and looking, really drilling down to specific technologies, specific regions, even to the city level in some cases to look at, you know, how, especially in Japan, uh, I mean, globally as well, but Japan as a a test case, there are many regions of Japan that are economically strong and getting more economically strong. Mm. And then there are parts of Japan that used to have uh, fossil fuels that are now being economically hollowed out Mm. as we move forward. And so renewables may play a very positive role in a similar way to what we've seen here. So looking at more specific cases in those terms. And the other thing that we are doing, which we are very excited about, and I hope perhaps in a year or two, if we get to talk again. We may may speak again. Yeah. Is that the social equity impacts of people's behavior Mm. and its alignment with their values for the future, whether or not we can influence these outcomes through our, our behaviours in, in, more in general. Mm. So we're really drilling down even to the people in mm. the systems to look mm. here. So there are some interesting things on the horizon. Mm. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how we go. Well, thank you very much uh, for your time today, uh, Andrew. We'll be speaking to uh, Andrew Chapman, who is an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Economics, on the paper Evaluating the Global Impact of Low-Carbon Energy Transitions on Social Equity. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. Likewise, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.